Well, thank you so much for letting uh, me speak to you. It's just been a joy. Uh, this will, I've got one more talk this afternoon in a breakout, but I, I was actually really unsure as to whether or not I was supposed to give this talk at this event, because this talk had nothing to do with freedom. And, uh, but it was really on my heart, and I just didn't know what it was for, and uh, after hearing the talk last night, I was like, oh, this is, last night was part A, this is part B of the same theme to your movement. So I very, want, very humbly wanna submit to you that this could be something from God for you, and that if you receive this, this could open up some new things. This was provoked because I, this talk was provoked because I had a chance to meet with one of the most amazing pastors in America. And if I said his name, you would all know who he is. And I said to him, in this, this moment, I, was just, I said, look, I'm just obsessed with the concept of revival. And you care about revival. And if revival really came at a moment of history like ours, what would it look like? And I was absolutely dumbfounded because this, this amazing man of God really didn't have an answer. And he sort of stumbled for a minute and he said, no, one, no one's actually ever asked that. What it would look like if it happened today. And so I left that with just this profound sense. I was like, is, uh, maybe there's something in the Bible about that, what it would look like. And so I wanna share with you today five signs of what revival would look like if it happened in our time, and perhaps five keys of what to pray for specifically for spiritual awakening in an area. So last night was the call to pray. I wanna give you the content of what to pray that is connected to revival. Now, uh, I, God spoke to me very clearly about a year ago from a passage in the Old Testament, a, favorite, uh, a famous passage about breaking up the fallow ground. And uh, do you know what fallow ground is? Because I sure didn't. We don't really walk around talking about, oh, how's the fallow parts of your heart doing right now? It's not language that we use. But So I did a bunch of research and realized that fallow wasn't the third soil, perhaps, as we think about it. Fallow just meant land that had been resting or had not been plowed. And so there was a possible harvest in certain areas, but, but the ground just hadn't been sown, it hasn't been plowed up. And I felt God say to me, I want you to plow up to the edge of your leadership. So at that point I was plowing at about 60% and I had left the church that I had started uh, 11 years earlier and was starting another church and I was in the middle of this and I was like, I don't really have a large enough church to be in a fallow ground campaign right now. At the time, there was probably 200 people, and I was just like, we, we can't do this. But we just said, okay, I, we'll just try and obey you. And so we, we did this thing uh, where we just said, we're just gonna pray all night. Like, I've never been to an all-night prayer meeting before, and I'm not particularly good at doing anything really all night other than sleeping, but we'll <laughs> give it a shot. And so we prayed all night, and then following on from praying all night, we said, we're gonna hold Friday night, half nights of prayer for revival. And so we started doing those. And then we started saying, let's just pray for spiritual awakening every morning for an hour as a staff team. And so as we began to push into this fallow ground, in the last year, we saw more people come to Christ for the first time than in the previous 10 years combined. 
And I, God began to speak to me about this very simple thing, which is this, it's not the size of the tree, it's the quality of the fruit. You don't need large churches to see God do extraordinary things. What you need is just spiritual hunger. The Moravians sustained a 100 year prayer movement on a community of less than 400. They sent more missionaries in their little window of mission than the previous centuries combined. The Moravians inspired John Wesley and ultimately he came to Christ at a Moravian meeting. William Carey, who became the father of modern missions, got so frustrated and spiritually jealous of the stories of the Moravians doing missions that he ran into the Baptist Missionary Society, threw down a document and said, why can't we reach the heathen like the Moravians? And so God just began to stir this up in my heart, breaking up the fallow ground. And so if that resonates with you and you felt like we're not big enough to do that or we don't have the team to do that or whatever, dismiss those lies and press into it because I think there's something there. I think if you begin to, to plow to the edge of your leadership, not leaving anything back, that's one of the, I think, the flaws of our, our, our thinking about leadership is that we don't think about pouring out everything that we have. We're trying to save something for later, but if you look at all the movements of God that have really worked, they just basically bankrupted themselves for that Kairos moment in their time of history. They just said, you know what, I'm just gonna pour this all out. I'm not gonna go to the grave with 40% of my spiritual possibility hovering around because I thought I'd burn out or there wasn't enough margin or whatever it was. I'm just gonna go all in. So I wanna encourage you to do that. So all that to say, that was a very long introduction. I'm tearing into my time, which is limited. So what I wanna do is give you these five keys and these are from a passage in the scripture, Acts chapter 11. And this is what it says. For those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch, began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them to all remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and brought, and through the spirit predicted a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And this they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word. So, this passage is a fascinating passage, and what's so important about it is because this is the first time that the gospel moves primarily from a Jewish context into a Gentile context. This is the first time they have to make a missiological shift between a Jewish audience and a Gentile audience. And it almost happens out of God's sovereign hand because the people are resistant. At this point, for whatever reason, the disciples are hovering in Jerusalem and, and establishing an apostolic base out of Jerusalem. But then persecution happens after Stephen's death. And so they're scattered by this persecution. Peter has a revelation. He, the, the, the blanket with the, the bacon comes down from heaven and then 
God says, rise and eat. And he's like, no, Lord, which is an oxymoron. And then God has to do it three times and then he gets it. And then he goes to Cornelius' house in Acts 10 and he has this, this Gentile Pentecost where his mind is blown because while he's speaking, the Holy Spirit falls on them. And so at this point, God's giving every possible indicator that it's time to get to the Gentiles. But at this point, apostolic leadership doesn't run with it. And so as a result of the persecution, there's these leaders who just run around and they just break these cultural barriers. They plow new ground. They go into the city and they start preaching the gospel to Greeks as well. Some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. This was a colossal paradigm shift about the movement of Jesus in the world. Now, what was important about the city of Antioch, it was one of the third largest cities in the Roman Empire at the time. It was an incredibly diverse city. Uh, it had Greeks, Romans, uh, Persians, in, uh, Indians, Chinese people. It was a cosmopolitan, eclectic group of people. There was about 500,000 people or so, and the city was so racially segregated, and so, there was so much hostility, so much religious polarization that they actually built walls into the city that archaeologists have discovered to keep these ethnicities apart because there was so much conflict. So to be clear, the gospel is going to a new area, it's going to a major city, it's going to a different audience, and then we read this phrase, the Lord's hand was with them. What a phrase. You imagine doing ministry, you're just trotting along, you're doing the normal stuff, and then the hand of God comes on you and everything begins to shift. The, the challenge of movements like yours is that you look around at people who don't believe in gifts and, the gifts and power of the Holy Spirit for today, and when you compare yourselves to them, this looks like revival. But you know this isn't revival, you know this is normal Christianity. So let's not think that just because the Holy Spirit's moving that this is an outpouring. The question we have to ask is, if the hand of God really came upon normal Christianity, which is what this is, what would it look like then if it broke out in a city? So five things of what happens when the hand of God comes upon an area, upon a people, and revival breaks out. Here's the first one. When the hand of God comes on a community, there are radical conversions. Radical conversions. Now in this passage, verse 21 that I read, it says this, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So this is a, a biblical phrase, a great number of people. Some sort of outpouring where they couldn't exactly count it like they could on the day of Pentecost. How many people was it? It was like, oh, a great number. A multitude of people an absolute outpouring of salvations. And I love this phrase that we read in verse 20, uh, 33. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God. So there's tangible evidence that the grace of God is showing up. And what is this evidence? Well, I think the evidence is this. Because this was not a Jewish context, you had godless pagans coming to faith in the first time. This would have meant that there was prostitutes becoming followers of Jesus. This would have meant that there would be idolaters becoming followers of Jesus. There would have been involved, people involved in temple worship. This would have been the category of sinners and Gentiles. And in the Jewish mind, they couldn't believe that God would love the Gentiles. But in this context, we see the least likely people being converted in multitudes. And they're so unlikely to be saved that the scriptures say there is tangible proof of the grace of God. 
When a normal person who's pretty emotionally healthy and comes from somewhat of a religious background makes a fresh commitment to Jesus, that's, that's great. Praise God for that. But every now and then you have these conversions that just remind you the gospel is true. That's the Jesus stuff. That's the stu- that is the signal through the noise that makes you God, say, God, do that again. And when the hand of God comes on people, you start getting those least likely conversions in that part of the world. So news of this reaches the church in Jerusalem. They send Barnabas to come and to investigate. This was a movement of the power of God. Whenever the hand of God comes, a different kind of salvation and a different kind of sinner is drawn to the cross. This is one account of what that looks like from the book Revival in the Hebrides. This is what it says. One who was coming into saving and covenant relationship with Jesus Christ spoke on the following evening to a young man. Suddenly conviction grips him and he begins to tremble and to try and shake it off. He goes into the town of Stornoway and enters the pub to get away from this overwhelming sense of the presence of God. And when he enters the public house, he finds their men speaking about their lost and ruined state. He says, this is no place for a man anxious to shake this off. I will go to a dance. And that night he went to a dance and was not in the whole five minutes when a young woman came up to him and said, mentioning his name, oh, where would eternity find us if God struck us dead now? <laughs> the sense of God was everywhere. That evening, the young man found the savior. He could not escape God. This sense of the, the awareness of God. So I'd read about these accounts, but I'd never quite experienced anything like it. I just began to cry out, God, can you still do salvations like that today where people cannot escape the presence of God? So I'm in the middle of seeking God about this. And at the end of our, at the end of our church uh, services, we have a time we call lingering. And lingering is basically our effort to create a portal of faith in the middle of secular, cynical New York where the Holy Spirit will move. So we, so we do our ministry time at the end of the service, not during the service. And a part of the reason I wanna do that is because I think that God's drawn to two things. He's drawn to need and he's drawn to faith. And there's just so many secular people, so many people cynical of this stuff. I'm like, let's just weed the atmosphere of that. Thank you for coming, bless you. If you wanna stay, you can. And then what we're left with is people who are hungry and people who have legitimate needs. So we pray for people and it's just been marvelous. And then one night in this season of crying out to God, bring in awareness of God, convert multitudes, give us the least likely conversions. We're doing our ministry time and the ministry time ends and there's this girl who's walked in and I'm just nervous about her because she's just shaking and she just looks completely out of control and she literally waits till everybody else is gone. It's my wife and I and one or two people left in the band packing up and she says, excuse me, sir, can you pray for me? And I was like, yeah, I'd love to pray for you. What's going on? And she just began to shake. And she said, two and a half days ago, somebody at work mentioned God's name to me and I came under the conviction of my sin. And I haven't been able to escape it. So I left work and I've just spent time in my apartment, but I'm, I'm so uncomfortable because I can't get rid of this feeling of sin. Yesterday, I tried to leave the city and I went to the bus stop. But when I went to the bus stop, God was there convicting me of my sin. And I had the realization that if I went to Philadelphia, that he'd be on the bus and he'd be in Philadelphia as well. (laughs) 
So I took the day off work and I've spent the afternoon walking the streets of this city trying to find a church I can repent in. Would you be willing to pray for me? So I said to her, you seem to have an idea of what your need is. Why don't you pray yourself? And she let out this guttural travail that if you had heard it, you would have been, what is that? What is that? And my wife's looking at me and I'm like, she said sin, she said conviction. As far as I can tell, demons don't convict people of their sin, make them aware of the presence of God. Let's just go in. And she just had this overwhelming encounter with the Savior. And she said, I could feel my sin lift off me. And then the joy set in. And she's just sitting there weeping. It's gone, it's gone, it's gone. And I remember sitting there saying, I've been in New York 13 years or so. And that's the only time I've seen that. And I felt God just speaking to my spirit. This is a foretaste. If you're hungry, there is more of this. Least likely people, people who cannot escape the presence of God. There's no point going to another city. There's no point trying to shake this off. The hand of God is on me. I must respond to him. We need a movement of the gospel. That's not just about ideas. Whenever I, I have a lot of friends who talk about being gospel-centered and I'm like, look, I'm, I'm down with that. If you mean the gospel of the kingdom and if you mean the gospel of power. Because you read in 1 Thessalonians 1, it says this, we know Brothers and sisters, loved by God that He's chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. And so we've just started to see a stream. This is a photo here. We just started to see a stream of these least likely conversions happening in our church. If you know this guy here, this guy is a very wealthy banker. This is a guy who was a total sex addict. This is a guy whose life you would not believe and you would not recognize him now. And we're just seeing a whole movement of these, the least likely conversions. Listen, let's be honest. A lot of church planting these days, a lot of church growth is just Christians who have a preference for a different kind of church coming to a different church. And there's not enough believers left in your nation to just keep shuffling the kingdom deck and just call that movement or growth. At some point, somebody's gonna have to cry out to God and his hand's gonna have to come down and multitudes who are least likely people are gonna have to come to Jesus. When the hand of God's on people, there are radical conversion. The second thing that happens, when the hand of God is on a community, there are, there's radical reconciliation. This verse here, verse 21, verse 24, used the phrase, great numbers of people were believed and brought to the Lord. Like I mentioned earlier, Antioch was a multi-ethnic city built in 300 BC by one of Alexander the Great's generals. It was filled with Romans, Greeks, Jews, Persians, Indians, Africans, the Chinese, incredibly diverse. 18 quarters were built into the architecture of the city. And every culture thought their culture was superior to others. And at that point in time, gods were primarily ethnically based. So if you went to a particular region or you were from a particular ethnicity, you worship that particular God. But this is the first time in history they were actually breaking down walls so that could, people could get together and they could actually worship. This church ended up being a staggeringly multi-ethnic church. Acts 13 verses one through three 
This is what we lead. Now at the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So what we've got in this church is leaders of the church representing three different continents, four different nationalities, and wildly different socioeconomic classes. You've got a cultural elite brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and you've got others from the fringes of the empire. And you will see that this is one of the key impacts of the kingdom of God breaking in a city. There is radical re reconciliation. It's between races, races, it's between classes, it's between generations. We need this in our fractured, polarized world more than we ever have before. People are doing everything within their power to try and bring people together. And one of the things they're relying on is legislation. We are going to force you to get along and be civil. But the problem with that is that it doesn't actually touch the human heart. It is a coercive community that will break apart upon first opportunity rather than a community that has been melted together in new covenant love. And God's primary heart is melting the heart so that we reconcile with one another. There's a verse here in Hebrews chapter 12, and I've never seen this before, but this is a verse of such staggering beauty because it lets us know what the blood of Jesus was shed for. It says this in Hebrews 12, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. And we, we love that. Yeah, it's a vision of worship. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And what is this? To the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What was the blood of Abel? The blood of Abel was blood of murder spilled into the ground through brotherly hostility. And Jesus comes along and he says, I'm the mediator of a new covenant. I don't kill my enemies, I die for them and I reconcile them. And so now the blood of Jesus is better than any other human covenant that is based on war, that is based on violence and he reconciles people into a new humanity and people who would never be in the same room are now in the throne room of heaven. Now listen, I very gently, 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 overstepping my bounds, never invited back, very, very humbly, <laughs> just wanna submit that this room is staggeringly white. I'm, it's just an observation I have as an outsider. And there's so much need for models of reconciliation. And the church is the only one that has this mediating covenant of a, of a new vision of humanity that can bring people together. We need to have these kinds of communities where you would say, if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, none of these people would be in this room together. There's just, there's, this is a Jesus community. And this is what the Holy Spirit does because you, you remember the tension of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has tax collectors, total sellouts, cultural enemies, he has zealots, political terrorists, committed to getting the Romans out by violent means. He has fishermen who are total peasants and they've all got these, he's got violent people, Lord, should we call down fire? He's got all of these things swirling around and Jesus holds them together with his physical presence. But then Jesus ascends, blessing everybody. Jesus is like, I'm out. And you can feel those tensions. Will this break apart? But then the Holy Spirit comes and they're baptized with the, where they're one in heart, one in mind, 
where those walls and divisions are broken down. Whenever the Holy Spirit's pulled out, He is pulling together things that are fractured. He's pulling together things that don't come quite naturally. We need more of this. We need more of this. Whenever the hand of God comes on a community, there is radical reconciliation. Third thing, when the hand of God comes on a community, there's extraordinary generosity. Whenever God releases his spirit for movement, he releases resources to fund it. And many of the movements in history, you're aware of this, have been funded by what one author calls gospel patrons, disproportionately wealthy people who get a heart for the movement and fund it. And you can read a book, I recommend the book Gospel Patrons, it talks about people who have funded revivals in history. But this is how the earliest revival started, didn't it? In the New Testament, those who had money in houses would occasionally, whenever it was needed, sell it and lay it at the apostles' feet. And they'd give to whoever had need. And, and we see an example of this in this passage. This is, this is what it says. I want you to think how generous they are because this is a random Jewish prophet coming into a Gentile context, giving a prophetic word and they empty their wallets. This is what it says. During this time, verse 22, during this time, the prophets came down, 27, sorry, came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the spirit predicted a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. They did this, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and by Saul. So the prophet shows up, says, hey, there's gonna be a, a famine, and there was in 45 AD, the Nile was unusually high, there was a 100-year flood, it flooded the grain fields of Egypt, the world was thrown into crisis. But the prophet gives a word, and the people of God send back to those who gave them the gospel the resources they needed to thrive in that region. One scholar says this, the famine relief indicates a complete reconciliation as needs are met across geographical and ethnic boundaries. The relief betrays the oneness and caring of the community, as did Acts 4 in Jerusalem, where good deeds were shared, racial harmony and caring are possible. The church is one despite being in different locales. I love this vision of just radical generosity. Tim Keller has a concept that I love called financial promiscuity. <laughs> he says this, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. <laughs> That's good. Just to push it a little further, financial promiscuity. You ever been around someone who's financially promiscuous? Just can't keep his wallet in his pants. Everywhere he goes, he's like, no, I've got you. I've got you. I've got, I've got you. I've got you. No, it's on me. It's on me. It's on me. When I was a new believer, I was a youth, I, that was too much and I'm sorry. Someone said yesterday, you can't speak like that to the British, so I apologize. Sort of. Um, go ahead. Freedom. <laughs> That's good. So when I, was, when I was a new believer, I experienced someone who was financially promiscuous. I was a youth pastor and I was young. I was 23 years old. Uh, my wife was 21. We just had our first son. 
And uh, that what they did, because I was uh, a new youth pastor, I was very, very young, they basically took the older youth pastor's salary and split it in half and gave half to somebody else and they gave half to me. And so I'm married, I'm living in a trailer park, which I don't know if you have those, I'm living in a caravan, like a traveler, I think that's the, I'm in an actual, just like a portable house. And I'm living in there and we have no money and things are so tight, so my wife is working at Starbucks right after my son is born. We're sort of juggling the schedule and trying to be the youth pastor. And then one day a guy comes through the Starbucks and I, I must have seen us prayed for or commissioned at the front and then comes along and says, hey, um, are you the new youth pastor's wife? Ah, uh, yes, I am. You just had a baby, right? Ah, uh, yes, I did. Where's the baby? Uh, John's uh, watching it right now. We're just juggling it. He said, okay, great. Hey, look, here's my card. Can you give this to your husband? I'd like to meet with him. So she comes home and she says, now look, my wife is a beautiful woman. She's, people give her the cards all the time. <laughs> so she comes home to me and she's like, look, someone gave me this card and he said, can you call him? And I was like, yes, I will call the guy that said, here's my car and can I have a chat with you? So I call this guy, he's an older gentleman, he's been a successful entrepreneur and he goes, hey, yeah, sorry about that, that was a bit weird. Um, but I'd, I'd like to get together with you and can we just have coffee? And so I get together with him and I say, yeah, okay, what's up? He said, hey, look, um, many, many years ago, when I was young, I was an entrepreneur and I put my job before my marriage and I messed my family up, I had an affair. I made a ton of money, but I wrecked my life. And so now, anytime I walk around and I see a young Christian couple under financial strain, I just wanna alleviate it. So I have a question for you. How much money does your wife make a month at Starbucks? And so I told him the amount, which, and he said, okay, I've got a deal for you. I will give you that amount every month so your wife can stay home, which was the cry of her heart, under one condition. You meet with me once a month and we pray for your marriage. And I said, I'm strangely open to that. <laughs> Financially promiscuous. Anytime he saw a chance to give, he just did this. What a vision. The church is known for being stingy. The church is being known for always wanting money from people. What if you unleashed a movement of generosity everywhere you went? How much would that up? And I can tell you 50 stories like that. Whenever the hand of God comes on a community, resources are released in supernatural ways. Number four, when the hand of God comes on a community, it raises up and releases people's destinies. There's a little verse in here, it just struck me. It says this, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. He was a good man, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Now Barnabas could have just said, oh, this is amazing. I'm starting barnabasinternationalministries.com and um, you can send your checks right here, and, uh, and he could have just had an amazing website with photos of the multitudes, with him and multitudes, and underneath it saying, full of faith in the Holy Spirit, <laughs> Barnabas, a man of God, but he didn't. You know what he does? He says, you know what? There's somebody who's become a follower of Jesus, and I know this is the exact sort of environment where his destiny is gonna be released. So he leaves the, the environment of momentum, goes and finds Saul, and brings him to this city, and in this year-long journey, we see the apostle, the apostle Paul rise into his destiny. And it's shortly after this that it becomes Paul and Barnabas, and then Paul's ministry is launched. And one of the things that, if you study revivals, one of the things that's extraordinary is the amount of people who come from nowhere and they're just raised up in a ministry. 
And isn't that true seriously about what's, what's happening here? John Wimber came over and who was he? He was like that Californian dude who liked to drink a Coke and walk with Jesus. But he comes to this country and look at the fruit of what's happened here. Look what's happened to HDB and new wine and then the vineyard itself, extraordinary. Your destinies have been released because some brought what they carried and they created an environment for the destinies of others to be released. And when the hand of God's on a community, the leaders will consciously create an environment to raise up and release the destinies of other people. When I was a, a, a new believer and there was this time of incredible spiritual momentum that I talked about yesterday, one of, one of the leaders came to me and he said, John, I see spiritual potential in you. And he said, I would like to, to develop you as a leader. I was like, okay, sweet. And uh, he says, what time do you get up? And at that time I was getting up at 4 a.m. to spend two hours every morning praying for revival. So I said to him, I get up at 4 a.m. And he goes, okay, great, I'll be over at your house at four o'clock. I was like, okay. And he told me years later that he almost fainted and didn't <laughs> want to do that or whatever. But in the moment, he didn't blink. And so I hardly knew this guy. And he just, and so I'll never forget, it was very, very awkward. So four o'clock, he's like, <clears throat> like, hey. He's like, hey, you ready to get into it? I'm like, okay. And uh, so we, so what, what are we gonna do? So we go to the couch and we're sitting on the couch and it's really awkward. And he says, uh, show me what you're doing in the Bible. And I said, well, I'm just, you know, I'm studying the life of David because I wanna be a man after God's own heart. He says, oh, that's great, I love David. He says, show me what you do. I was like, okay, um, well, <laughs> pick up the Bible and I read about David. And then I say, God, make me like David. And that's it. And then I say, pour out your spirit on Australia and whatever. And he goes, I love that. I love that. He said, hey, give me, give me your Bible. Do you know what an inductive Bible study is? I was like, is that legal? He's like, yeah, it's totally, man. So he just, and so he shows me how to study the Bible. And I remember sitting on the couch like he was Yoda. I remember just saying to them, can you teach me? That's a sermon, man. That's not devotions. That's a sermon. He says, you like that? I said, yes. He said, I can teach you that and so much more. And so this is a guy that just invested in me, taught me how to read the Bible, study the Bible, taught me how to pray, taught me how to share my faith, would do these exercises where he would like challenge me and we'd do all these workshops where I'm responding to all these questions. And then he'd say to me, okay, John, you're ready. You're taking this to real life now. You're gonna share the gospel with someone at lunch today at the butcher shop. And I was like, how do you know? He goes, because you're going to. I'm telling you that you will. So, okay, fantastic. He said, now, I'm gonna come from work and I'm gonna sit out the front of your butcher shop and I'm gonna intercede for one hour for you. And while I'm praying for you, I'm just believing God, the Holy Spirit's gonna give you a divine conversation. So he would show up and I'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> and sure enough, every time, then I'd go over his house for dinner and he'd say, what happened? What did they say? How did you respond? And he'd just workshop it out. This is a guy that just poured into me and believed me believed in me. Like I said uh, from my story yesterday, at the time, I was a high school dropout. I was in a, one of Australia's poorest neighborhoods, Elizabeth South, working in a meat factory. None of you would have ever said, oh, John, John Tyson, he's a real winner with potential. But he just sensed something and he was in an environment of incredible favor and momentum and he pulled me into it. He's the one that allowed me to get into the pulpit for the first time. He's the one that enabled me to speak. He's the one that gave me vision of how God could use my life. When I moved to America, I hadn't seen him for 17 years. And then one day we were both in San Francisco at the same moment. So we drove in the, very early in the morning, 
to meet me for 40 minutes between meetings. And after all of those years of not seeing him, he jumps straight in and he says, John, I hear that you're planting churches in America. Yes, I hear in New York and you have incredible traction. Yes, I have a question for you. Number one, have you lost your first love? Number two, what percentage of those people coming to your church are first-time conversions or just transfer growth? Just believed in me. (laughs) Believed in me. When the hand of God comes on a community, this is what it does. So I wanna show you a little bit more fruit. I wanna walk you through some slides here of people and where they are in the world now based on that youth group that I was a part of. Let's, let's roll through this. So this is the youth group I was a part of. It was called Solid Rock, but now it's called Planet Shakers. It's the second largest church in Australia, I believe. Next slide here, they have locations in Melbourne City, Melbourne North, Austin, Melbourne Northeast, Geelong, Geneva, Melbourne Southeast and South Africa. That was from a youth group of 150 people. Next slide. This is the church that I was a part of. This is called Influencers Church or in Australia, USA, Papua New Guinea and South Africa. I can tell you, Extraordinary story. A Harvest Church, another kid from the youth group. He now pastors a church that's grown. It's in two locations in Adelaide. Next slide here. This is a church that's one of the fastest growing churches in Nashville. This is a guy who used to surf with every weekend, experiencing tremendous revival. Next slide. This is a church that my best friend leads that I'm partnered with. This is, they've grown from 800 people to almost 7,000 in two years. Hand of God's on them. Franklin East Nashville, Spring Hill, Sylvan Park. Next slide. This is a church uh, Geelong in Geelong, extraordinary church, God's pouring out his favor. That's my friend who I used to surf with my other mate. Next slide here. This is one of the guys who would get me up and and pray on a hill. He would do these nights called faith nights where he'd get footage, VHS footage of moves of God around the world. Make us sit in a room and watch it and say, that's gonna happen with us. Then we spend the rest of the night in prayer. Next slide. He's got churches in Brisbane, Mumbai, in India, five locations here. His youth leader, next slide here, One of my old friends leads the largest youth group on the Sunshine Coast, extraordinary things happening. Next slide here. This is some other friends who are leaders in that student ministry. They now lead one of the largest churches in Melbourne. Next slide here. This is a friend of mine who was in the youth group. She's over a school chaplaincy for the entire state, seeing hundreds of kids impacted with the gospel. Next slide here. Uh, This is uh, Guy Sebastian who was in the youth group who became Australian Idol. Next slide here. Uh, (laughs) Next slide, that's not bad. Uh, this is a friend of mine who was a leader in that youth group as well. He's now over uh, Compassion International, was an incredibly successful pastor and church leader before that. Next slide here. These are the churches that I've been involved in planting in New York. This is 11 churches. Next slide. That's the end. So, but I say that to say, that's not bad fruit from a youth group of 150 people. So there's a, when there's an environment... When there's an environment of awakening, leaders steward that environment so that others' destinies can come up and the movement can spread. Okay, number five, when the hand of God's on a community, the church is given a new cultural identity. It says this, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Before that, they were called followers of the way and the term's only used two times in other places in scripture, Acts 26 and 1 Peter 4, but this was not something the Christians called themselves, this is something the world called the Christians. They didn't know how to recognize them or identify them, but they talked about Jesus so much and they looked so much like Jesus, they said, I guess you guys are like little Christ, so we're just gonna call you Christians. Words matter. Reputations matter. We've taken the three most sacred and fearful things in our world, Jesus Christ, hell, and sex, and turned them into swear words. 
and they're just being trampled, they mean nothing. But whenever the hand of God comes on a community, the name of the Lord Jesus is held in high regard. So we have to learn to live in this sort of culture as disciples of Jesus in such a way that people ask, what is that? What is that? Leslie Newbegin says this, we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. And you get that. Here's the kingdom. This is what the kingdom's like. Let me show you the kingdom. And the people are, what is that? And it provokes a conversation about Jesus. We must live in the kingdom of God in such a way it provokes questions which the gospel is the answer. Now, every now and then the church gets this right. They get it right. Uh, in 2012, there was a hurricane called Hurricane Sandy. Do you, I don't know if you saw that happen in the United States. It happened in New York City and it was just devastating. It was just so unbelievable to watch. Houses, buildings, streets, eight to 10 feet underwater. Some places, three meters underwater. Cars just floating down streets in New York City. It was absolutely incredible. Imagine being in a place like this, the whole thing's underwater. Where do you go? What do you do? Absolute trauma in the city. And so our church ended up setting up what became the largest uh, rescue and restoration site in Manhattan. Basically took over a park and one of our pastors set it up. And the city was just stunned. Because you know, today with the breakdown of social capital, people are not, they don't belong to any groups. They're not a part of a tribe or a movement or whatever. They're just radically isolated. And so when the city's like help, individuals are like helpless. But the church is like small groups now. And just boom, out of nowhere, this network of the people of Jesus exists. Apartment buildings, streets, they're present and they're activated. And I remember, I remember going to the site and it felt like a church reunion. It was like people from Hillsong was like, yo, what's up? There's people from Redeemer, how's it going? All of these church plants everywhere. And it was amazing. And people from the city kept saying, where do you come from? And I was like, these are the people of God, man. These are the people of God. This is what Christians do. But when the buzz wore off, it made me ask this question. Why does it take a crisis for the church to work together like that? Why do we wait to the absolute worst moment? Where's the initiative of saying, let's partner together, let's be proactive, let's do this? It needs to happen on a citywide level, it needs to happen with churches working together and it needs to happen with individuals. Somebody choosing to follow Jesus and really take his commands seriously can unleash an impact through their little world. I had one friend who was a very successful um, investment banker at Goldman Sachs, one of the the largest investment banks in the world, and he took a 90% pay rise Oh, so that would be good. He took a 90%, <laughs> serving God's hard blessing. He took a 90% pay cut to move into our neighborhood and plant a church with us. And his friends are like, why are you leaving, man? You've worked so hard to get here now. And he's like, look, man, this isn't what I'm after. This enables me to do this. And so he left and he just set, set shockwaves, just an assault on the spirit of mammon in his world. Other friends sold their comfortable house in the suburbs and moved into the heart of the city. Complete reverse direction of everybody else. Everybody's leaving and going to the suburbs and they just cash in and they move into the city. Everybody around them, why are you doing this? And it's like, this is what followers of Jesus do. We move hard places, we do hard things. That's why number 10, I was like, you are my people, number 10, whoever you are. Because that's the way the kingdom of God advances. So there's a call, there's a cloud There's a call, but what do you pray? I wanna humbly say that 
What God did in the city becomes a template for what we can pray for an outpouring of the Spirit in our day. And it says, dear God, we need radical conversions. We need, we need people that, people say, there's no way the whole world would be converted before that person. And they're like, here they come, they're coming, they're coming. We need to be the kind of church that reconciles, becomes this force of new covenant community that brings people together in ways the world just doesn't have a framework or legislation to facilitate. It's done in love. We need to be a community that are leveraging our resources and becoming financially promiscuous to establish the kingdom of God in our day. We need to be the kinds of people that have a movement of raising up and releasing the destiny of others. And then it needs to be the kind of church that is so provocative the world asks, what is that? Well, that, that my friend, is the kingdom of God in our midst. So the prayer to pray, as far as I can tell, and this is a prayer the early church prayed, you pray come Holy Spirit, I love that. Let me humbly suggest to you intercessors another prayer to pray right after that. Stretch out your hand, God. What a prayer. Stretch out your hand. You just see God is just watching what's happening. And then he finds a people who are ready, who meet the conditions of revival. And he says, this, this, my hand is on them. The early church faced moments of challenge and what was their prayer? Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. My prayer for your movement is the hand of God will be on you for radical conversions. The hand of God will be on you for radical racial, socioeconomic, and generational reconciliation. The hand of God will be on you for generosity and abundance. The hand of God will be on you to release the destiny of other leaders and raise them up. The hand of God will be on you to restore the honor of Jesus Christ and his church in this nation. So how does that happen? Here's how it happens. You humble yourself. You humble yourself. Listen to this, 1 Peter 5. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand and he'll lift you up in due time. It's the hand. Where's the hand of God? You get under it and you just stay there in humility and he'll raise you up. I close with a quote from Duncan Campbell, again from the Hebrides Revival, who says this. Oh dear people, here was a manifestation of God. Something greater than organization, something greater than planning, something more wonderful than a new approach, something more convicting than a new dynamic in the realm of evangelism. God at work, and I say that is the only answer to the problems that face us today. We may organize, we may plan, but until we get on our faces before God and do business with a covenant-keeping God, we shall not see revival. We can have our con conventions and conferences and speak of our wonderful times, but what we want and what we need is a fresh manifestation of the mighty power of God that brings men down in deep conviction to seek the Savior. So Father, we come into your presence now and I just pray, Lord God, I just pray, just stretch out your hand on the Vineyard Church, Lord. Stretch out your hand upon it, Lord God. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will just release a new wave of salvations, Lord God. I pray the videos they show next year will be impossible to believe except for the fact that they're true just impossible salvations. Release them, Lord God. Every part of this nation, Lord God, 
least likely people, the wealthiest people to the poorest people to the most godless people to the most self-righteous people, Lord God. Radical conversions. I pray, Lord Jesus, release financial resources, Lord God. Break his spirit of mammon, Father. Release provision for mission. Financial promiscuity, Lord, sweeps this movement and it begins to impact and touch cities, Lord God. I pray, Father, that you would just pour out your hand and raise up new leaders, Lord God. I just pray for a whole new movement of people. Even as they were talking about where will we be in 20 or 30 years, Lord? Raise those people up now, Lord. I pray for a movement of students in Jesus' name. Break their hearts, Lord God. I just pray, raise up intercessions amongst the youth, Lord God, that they would just have a heart for you, Lord. I just, I call for kids to wake up early and contend for their schools, Lord God. I call for people to contend for their workplaces early in the morning, Lord Jesus. I pray, give people no rest late at night, Father. I just declare TVs being turned off, Lord Jesus, and people falling on their knees, Lord God. Raise up people to seek You. Father, I just pray, restore influence to these churches in their communities, Lord. May they be held in high esteem. May the name of Jesus be lifted up, Lord God. We just pray, stretch out your hand, Father. We just confess that what we've seen, we love, but we're so hungry for more. So Father, I just pray, impart your hand, vision for a movement of the Holy Spirit. Do it again, Lord God. Do it again, we pray, the things you've done before. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe so. Amen.